Oh, it's a thrill to be joining you for Book by Book. And there's another edition in our series that we're doing on 1 Peter in the New Testament. So I hope you've got your Bible with you. We here have got our Bibles with you as we have this study together in All Souls Church in Langham Place, London, England. And uh, joining us, joining me, I'm Richard Buse, by the way, and I'll be your, your cheerful kind of coordinator for the study. Joining me is Paul Blackham, Dr. Paul Blackham, who is Lancashire-born, but living and working here in London. And then we've been joined by our special guest, Don Carson, who is Professor of New Testament in the Evangelical Divinity School at Illinois. And 1 Peter, no, yeah, 1 Peter, chapter 2, now we're on to, and we're going to start, well, really, it's from verse 11 right through to chapter 3, verse 7. Why don't I read just from chapter 2, verse 13? Ready? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So that's verse 13, by doing good. And then verse, back to verse 12, live such good lives. That is roughly what we're on about as we conduct this study together. I think I'd better start with Don, if I may. What kind of lifestyle then is Peter imagining that we should be living when he talks about um, doing good and living such good lives? Well, in general terms, he makes the point both negatively and positively in verses 11 and 12. On the one hand, negatively, we're not supposed to live the way the world does. In fact, he uses language that is really very strong. He says, in this world, we should view ourselves as aliens and strangers. Um, uh, I'm a Canadian, but I, I live in the United States, and I have a green card that tells me there I'm a resident alien. Um, I hope that doesn't yeah. mean I'm supposed to act distinctly un-American. But certainly what um, uh, Peter wants us to do is to live in a way that is distinctly not like the world. That is, the world is bound up with self-focus, self-interest, yes, loving sure. the created order, uh, selfishness, anti-God, independence, viewing God as at best a competitor. Uh, and we're not to be like that. We're, we're, so far as the world is concerned, we're to see ourselves as not belonging, not in that way. Um, but rather as aliens and strangers in this world. And from that perspective, not giving in to sinful desires, but abstaining from them. And then positively, on the other hand, we're to do good. To do good such that people will see our good deeds, so that whether they like us or our doctrine, nevertheless there can be a kind of almost begrudging, sometimes respect, a kind of um, uh, almost alienated admiration for good deeds that are done, in, and on the long haul, that can often bring a kind of glory to God and praise for Christ Jesus that, um, that, that nothing else will bring but, but, but the integrity of a life lived out for God. Yes. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful start for us in the study. I'd like to ask Paul a question. Here we are. So you think of these uh, readers of the 1 Peter. They were scattered. They were having rough times. They were an alien people in many ways. Uh, as regards the authorities and the governments were concerned. There may be people sharing in the study now, actually, who are living under a totalitarian regime, mm. perhaps harsh and unbending. How can we live as free people while we sort of submit to these strange governments? 
Well, it is interesting that so quite often, I suppose particularly Western Christians, think of the state as if all states were basically liberal democracies and really, you know, very kind, basically on side, uh, you know, kind, generally law-abiding. But really, Peter's got in mind a fascist state with a, an absolutely horrendous human rights record, perhaps one of the worst ever. You know, hundreds of thousands of people downtrodden and killed and so on and so forth. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, oh yeah, that is the government, submit to that. <laughs> so it's, it's a, no revolutions, no Spartacus, none of that sort of thing. No. So how can they possibly do that? Well, he, he gives them this radical statement, live as free men. So you're not free in a political sense, uh, and you may be a slave, you may be owned in every sort of worldly sense, but you're actually free in this really big sense. So he gives this sort of radical statement, but use that freedom not for armed conflict or overthrowing the government, but to submit, which is an like the most revolutionary thing he could have said. But the engine that enables this sort of thing to happen, it isn't just some sort of political philosophy, which is much stronger than that. He, he actually has this very powerful phrase, show proper respect to everyone, Love the brotherhood of believers. Well, that's the easy bit. Fear God and honour the king. Fear God, honour the king. That's the kind of, I think, the engine that enables this to happen. If you fear God because you know the living God and you understand what the future holds and everything like that, then you can view even a state which seemed eternal, the Roman Empire it was always going to last. And it, how can the kingdom of God outlast this? Well, if you know God, you know it will. And that you can do like Polycarp did in the early church and other people who would look these governors in the eye and show proper respect, but say to them, you, I don't need to fear you. You need to fear the living God, even as I do. And that enabled them to do that, to, to show proper respect, but also to be a bright witness to Jesus Christ. So they are law-abiding citizens. No one say, oh, you're a bunch of criminals trying to overthrow the state. No one could say that. But on the other hand, it was transparent that they served a much higher authority and feared something, someone much more fearsome than any Roman Empire. They quite a tightrope to walk. And actually, when you think, there were 60 million slaves in the time of the Roman Empire. That is a lot of slaves. And when we think about slaves, I mean, how can Peter's words about slavery which are here in this passage, have a close bearing on us today, Don. Well, sometimes people read this paragraph and merely make a transfer to the workplace. But that really is a bit too soft uh, because slavery was brutal and uh, cannot be whitewashed. Mm. Um, what's remarkable in this passage, however, is that uh, Paul does not um, simply say that slavery is bad. Elsewhere, you can say, if you can get rid of your slavery, by all means do. If you can get your freedom, do. But he lays on Christian masters and on Christian slaves um, a goal that transcends the evil of the thing itself. So when he was writing to Philemon, for example, a Christian slave master, who, who has the right of life and death over a slave, a slave who has run away and stolen I mean, his own goods. It's one of the revolutionary goods. bits of the New Testament, isn't it? That, uh, that whole uh, um, letter to, the, to Philemon. It, it's, it's remarkable, because if it's taken seriously, you have a slave master who's told to treat his slave like a brother, like the Apostle Paul himself, to do it for the Gospel's sake, to receive him as he would receive the Apostle, and on and on and on. If that's taken seriously, mm -hmm. then slavery is undermined. 
But meanwhile, the slave himself here is told not to serve with mere grudging obedience, doing what he has to do in any case, but actually to bear up so well that even when he is punished unjustly, he should see this unjust punishment as a sign that he's peculiarly blessed by God. What, what, what Peter goes on to say is that uh, any idiot, as it were, can, can suffer for things that he or she deserves, and there's nothing meritorious, there's nothing commendatory, there's nothing particularly noble in that, but to suffer unjustly, then it shows you are allied with Christ because he suffered unjustly. And the text goes so far as to say that the cross, for all of its um, redemptive uniqueness, for all the fact that this was the means by which God saves us from our sin, it is also an example that shows us how to live. And that means that Christians, in, in every situation of life, learn to suffer unjustly without whining and complaint and self-pity and paranoia. We, we, we suffer because we follow Christ and we, we bear up under it without bitterness. That is so hard to learn. But whether we're slaves or whether we're picked on by a giant corporation or we find ourselves in really difficult circumstances of life or our marriages are falling apart, in, in every area of life in this fallen and broken world, we do not think that God or the world or our family owes us a comfortable existence. If we suffer unjustly, that's when we're most following the pattern of Christ who suffered unjustly. Actually, it's all over the New Testament. It's in uh, Titus, the yes. letters to Titus, that uh, the slaves there were not to pilfer, be refractory, and things like that. And they they were told. Uh, I suppose that was the model. That was one of the models. I mean, the apostles hadn't got much more than the slaves to work on as a model as to how to live. Uh, but and that can also be, become, if I may say so too, it become it can become the. the the, the, the model of what it means to be a slave to Christ. A slave to Christ is one of Paul's highest marks of uh, adoration, obedience, um, duty, oblig yeah. obligation. Uh, if you have the right master. So he has the slave uh, model, yes. but then the right master. Oh, that's that's right. wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And Paul, a master who's died for let's you. Let's talk about that example, then, that higher example. Yeah. I mean, what did the slaves have as mm. an example of how to live? Of course, they had uh, Paul and uh, Peter and so forth. But uh, they couldn't really meet them. They didn't see them. I think because he puts the example of Christ here and, and, and kind of just recalls how exactly Jesus performed during his trial that he did not fly into a rage or return insults or when Pontius Pilate uh, says, oh, yeah, I've got this power. And he says, well, right, we'll see who's got some real power. Watch this. Which, would, I mean, of course, that's what we want to do. And the thing is, so often, if we are suffering, we have no option, in a sense. Very often we might say, oh, well, I can't call a huge army to come and vindicate me at this very instant. Jesus actually could. He actually said, don't you realize, I could easily call a huge spiritual army of angels and they would come and vindicate me instantly and get rid of all. But he didn't do any of those. And he didn't, and his voice was such authority but he doesn't do any of those things. He just silently endures the unjust treatment. And Peter labors it and notes that it was even prophesied that he would be like that. And it, it bears such meditation because the powers of the world had conspired against him, the religious authorities, the state, Pontius Pilate, and everyone was against him. And even under such duress, he does not retaliate at any point and it's really worthy of tremendous meditation mm -hmm. 
and Peter just puts him before us in that way and, and ends with the comment about being an overseer of our souls. He, he's worth following because to do that, he will look after our souls. Because remember, he's already focused on evil desires war against our souls, but following his example cares for your souls yes. in that way. And it's wonderful how that passage takes it right to the heart of the cross. Mm. I mean, 1 Peter 2.24 is a, is a sentence from the Bible that I'm sure many people have learnt. By heart, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Then he comes on a bit more about this practical living of doing good, such good lives. What about the wives? Here we are done. How should a wife show the gospel to her husband in chapter 3 now? The particular emphasis here especially is on a mixed marriage. That is, um, a wife who has an unbelieving husband, which can be a particularly brutal situation on occasion. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And, and here the argument is not, uh, um, well, if you're a Christian and your husband isn't, what you should really pray for is, is that you can be divorced and set free so that you can go and marry a decent Christian chap uh, or anything like this. Rather, it is um, uh, be extraordinary as a wife. Uh, serve your husband. Uh, work on the graces of inner beauty that are absolutely transforming. Treat him with great respect. And, and all of the kinds of things which, which even if he is not um, transformed by them, at least he has no legitimate ground of complaint against you. And in the grace of God, it really does mean very often that those men are captured by such a transparent godliness and are caught by the gospel because of it. It's happened many times, many times in history, and I'm sure it's happening today. Paul Blackham, last question we've just got time for. How can a husband then give, well, display grace to his wife? He just isolates a thing. He says, the wife's a weaker vessel. Well, what does he think? He's, well, the way in which a wife is weaker than her husband is physically in nearly every occasion, I suppose, unless you're married to a, a female wrestler or something. But mostly that's going to be the case. And I think that's a, an important thing because domestic violence is such a massive thing. Two women every week in the UK are killed in domestic violence. It's the 10th biggest killer of women between, aged between 15 and 55. And he's really saying, as a Christian husband, and, and that domestic violence does happen in Christian circles as well, he's really saying that should absolutely not be the case. The husband should use his strength for the advantage of his wife, but never against her, in just the same way that Christ did that at his own trial. He didn't use any strength he got against anybody. Oh, Paul, that's very good. Yeah, and when you're thinking about those weaker partners, so-called, I mean, actually, my wife is much stronger than I am. Where she gets her vitality from, for all the things she does, I do not know. She's brilliant with our children. She's brilliant with our grandchildren. And I can only try and gain strength from her. We've been thinking about examples of uh, living and how to live such good lives. That's the phrase. That's what we've been on about. That is what wins people. And I remember being at a cocktail party when I said to a young man there who was not a believer, why are you here? Oh, he said, I'm here because of, and he pointed at somebody, I'm here because of him. I watched his life, and I thought I must come and find out more about it. That is what we're on about in this study. We'll do another one soon. Thank you for joining us.